everyone, and welcome to the Learn and Lead podcast. The Learn and Lead podcast is for educators by educators, and we want to bring the world of Arizona public education to you and our thousands of members across the state. Our objective is to provide a platform for the voices of our educator leaders, along with some amazing community allies, and have conversations about those education topics that are on everyone's mind. Hi, everyone. This is Amber Gould, your Arizona Education Association State Treasurer. And I'm Carrie Wolf, your A Learn and Lead Specialist. And we have an amazing guest in here with us today. We have the one and only Kelly Fisher. Hey, everybody. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Kelly is uh, the Deer Valley Education Association president. And on top of that, she serves as our NEA director for Arizona. That's me. And she's a little bit famous. You may remember all of her wonderful videos during our Red Fred walkout. Um, she was a huge, huge part of making sure everyone had an information about the Invest in Ed initiative that we were working on. And my most memorable video was when she had an umbrella in the shower singing Purple Rain <laughs> to get people to show up for Invest in Ed signature drop-off, which was such an exciting moment. You, you mean that's not how you shower on a normal <laughs> basis? Like... <laughs> Well, and also, I mean, there's a good chance she's probably knocked on your door. Yes. At least (laughs) least once, maybe multiple times, if we're being honest. So... Uh, so yeah, I mean, Kelly, Kelly, you're kind of a legend for being honest. So no pressure here. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll you know try to try to hold back. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's funny is like all of this um, is is great and all, but we actually are bringing you in to talk about things that occur in your classroom because got kindergarten teacher in the house here, um, and so that actually leads me to to our joke because we have to start off with a joke, right, Carrie? Oh, I'm so ready. Okay, are we ready for this? Are we ready for the joke? I'm yes. ready. Okay, all right. So. In a school of fish, what are the students? What's the students' favorite game to play? In a school of fish, what's their favorite game to play? Oh, go fish! I don't know. That's not oh, right. That's, that's what, what I was thinking that good. I was gonna go with uh, salmon says. Salmon says. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go fish was a, a solid one though. I didn't even think of that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a long day. <laughs> that's what I got. I got salmon says. I did have one like, what do you call it? Like what? Um, what do you call when you have stormtroopers that are playing Monopoly? Because, you know, Star Wars and all that game of clones. <laughs> now that's one my yeah. son would love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which leads us to our topic, because we're talking about play in the classroom today. I love it. You know, Kelly, can you just talk to us about, um, you know, play-based learning in general, and why, why is it something that you incorporate as a kinder teacher? Why is it something that every educator should incorporate in their classroom? Um, you know, I know there's a lot of things out there from people who shall not be named um, around how we should just do reading and math, but, um, you know, we know play-based um, learning is a huge, huge thing in education, and so I'd love if you just share some background knowledge for us. I would be happy to. So, I think that my biggest role as a teacher is twofold. First of all, it's to lay the academic foundation for all the grades to come. And second of all, it is really important for me to teach the kids to learn to love school and to show them that school can be a fun place every day. And I started 24 years ago with teaching first grade, and I decided that Because I was new, I could kind of 
create what I wanted to. I started in the Glendale Elementary District, and at the time, there was not a lot of curriculum. People were pulling pieces of this and that for me to try to use and figure out. And I was lucky enough to um, be a little bit older coming into education and brave enough to sort of uh, create my own trail. And I just decided that kids would be much more engaged in their learning if I created games and if we played while we were learning. So we did um, sight word jumping jacks and sight word uh, kickball and sight word snowball fights and all kinds of different things uh, to incorporate fun into their learning. And by the end of my first year, I had parents writing to the superintendent saying that they were so thrilled. They were very nervous about putting their children into a brand new teacher's classroom, but they were so thrilled with the outcome in the end because their kids truly had a great experience. So I just took it off from there and started teaching kindergarten in Deer Valley. And I decided even though we started to move towards Common Core and people were coming in my room and saying, what are you going to do? You're not going to be able to play anymore. And I said, I can still teach the standards and play at the same time. It broke my heart when teachers started saying that their districts were pulling their play kitchens and their centers out of their classroom and they were just to stick to the curriculum because you can do both. And, you know, I do that. I have my kids play in the kitchen, but they might have to look at a book about um, maybe how to be a waitress or something like that. And they get to write the menu themselves and they get to add up the tickets for their customers and but all along, they're dressing up and they're cooking and they're pretending to be silly, you know, waiters serving crazy concoctions of food and laughing and getting to know each other and socializing. And I think that's really a part that we've lost over the years. Yeah, a lot of my uh, a lot of my nieces and nephews have played like kitchen and things like that. And so I have been. Um, you know, I've been a customer at many of those uh, <laughs> yes. particular restaurants. And I'm going to be honest, some of those meals are better than others. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I might not have given them a high review on Yelp, if we're being honest. Yeah. But when but, you get the ice cream cone with oh, yeah, the hot yeah, dog, yeah. that's really Oh, not. yeah, the hot, yeah, the, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's fair. To that point, though, like, it's so clear how that type of play helps with that cognitive development. And you start to see, um, you start to see the kids actually, like, focus on these like motor skills that they need in order to do that, these different types of tasks, especially in some of that like dynamic play situation. So I can't, I can't imagine uh, like having a kindergarten class or a first grade class where you don't have the opportunity for that, for that play aspect. Cause as a high school teacher, I incorporate play in my classroom. Um, and it, it makes a huge difference in um, not only like the building the community piece of my classroom, but then just how students are able to respond to one another and build ideas off of one another. So developing that at such a young age, it's, I feel like it's so pivotal and there's so much science behind it. Like the more that I've researched, the more that it's like, it's, these are like pivotal to the development of our kids. Well, and there's no age limit on play-based <coughs> learning. I mean, they all the research shows that at every age, people learn best when they experience things, right? Experiential learning, which is exactly what those centers are. Even adults, right? Like we learn best in situations where we are in it and we are role-playing and we are doing the work. Um, and that's how we learn. We do on-the-job training, apprenticeships, right? Like student teaching, interning. 
And there's a, there's psychological safety that's impact, like that's built when you are able to take those risks and be a little silly, but all the collaboration skills too. I know there's so many parents who are concerned about the effects of screen time and all of these other pieces, but having opportunities for play increases communication opportunities with peers and with adults. And you learn some of those skills you might not have if you were just to be doing a worksheet. Absolutely. And that's one thing that is really sad. In in today's kindergarten classes, a lot of times you will walk in and see the kids all sitting up in front of the smart board. And there's one student interacting and everybody else is just sitting and watching. And then they're done and they all go to their seats and get their iPads out. There's no interaction between the kids. There's nothing but the teacher walking around telling kids what they did right and what they might be, you know, needing support in. And it's quite different when you walk into my room. (laughs) It's a little bit noisy all the time, which I think is great because the kids are talking to each other. And I always tell them I have one rule. You can talk and be silly and laugh as long as it has to do with what you're supposed to be learning and what you're supposed to be working on. And you know, they love that. They love that they know they have the freedom to talk to each other. If they need support, I always tell them, ask three before you come to me so that they can ask their friends and build those relationships and learn to problem solve themselves with their other classmates instead of constantly relying on me. And it's so important that they that they know they can do that and that they know they have those supports besides their teacher. But it's also so important to build that independence They're not as reliant on me when they're playing a game to learn whatever skill it is, whether it's math, reading, social studies, science, whatever it is. They don't depend on the answers from me. They learn to figure it out and they laugh if they make a mistake instead of, you know, ripping up a worksheet because they made a mistake and they have to start over. And there's so much less behavior issues in the classroom because they really are having fun and they're engaged. They don't have time to think about, you know, being naughty or doing something to a classmate because they're too busy having fun with them. So it really does cut down on the discipline issues too. Well, just uh, once again, going back to those social skills, like that's a big piece of it, being able, like when they get to high school and we're talking like through rhetorical analysis and we're discussing argument, um, I mean, the fact that kids are able to have conversations about topics that they might not always agree on, but they're able to have civil conversation on it is huge. And so much of it starts from that beginning level, being able to communicate effectively um, as, as young children. And so I can see it when they reach my classroom, the kids that have had that opportunity for play um, and the kids that maybe haven't and ha- don't have necessarily those social skills in place, even saying things like please and thank you. Those are something like, even when I have Kagan structures or group structures in my classroom, right? At the end of each one, I'm like, and don't forget, tell your partner thank you and things like that because they constantly need those reminders and it's so easy to tell the kids that had that foundation and the kids that didn't and having to teach that at the high school level becomes a whole new ball game absolutely and I think they're you know they're way more open to if they do forget if they've been taught in other classrooms it's more like oh I I forgot sorry instead of being mad that you're telling them to think or, um, you know, say please and thank you to a classmate. I think it's easier if they've been exposed to it all through the years. So obviously we have three different experience levels in terms of like grade levels, right? We've got elementary ed. Um, I've been a middle school educator. Amber, you've been a high school educator. Um, so what are some of your favorite like 
K5 strategies that our educators could implement tomorrow. What are some of your favorite play-based activities? So I um, love, one of my favorite activities is to have the kids write whatever it is. In, we always do this in the winter. We do snowball fight in the classroom. So it might be a, a number problem. It might be a sight word. Whatever it is, they write it on the paper, crumple it up, and then at the count of three, we all throw them across the room and they, they run over and pick a different one up. And if it's a math problem, they solve it. If it's a sight word, they read it and they use it in a sentence with a partner, something like that. Crumple it up again, do it again, throw these around the room several times. And the kids love it. And it's great practice for skills. And it's really quick and simple. It takes scrap paper and 10 minutes of your time. So it's something really, really simple to do. And you could do it at any level. Um, another one I love to do, and this is probably more elementary, but honestly, pretty much any kid, K through six student loves Play-Doh. <laughs> so in my classroom, we do uh, Play-Doh sight words where they spell their words out with Play-Doh and they all get to do that. And then they, I have uh, differentiated activities after that for them to do, but everybody, regardless of their ability level, gets to spell out the sight words. We use Play-Doh for addition and subtraction where they roll it. And if it's subtraction, they get to take their fist and pound it to, you know, to smash it and take <laughs> it away. And they love those things. And you could do that in any grade. You could have the upper grade kids making, you know, shapes out of Play-Doh or something like that, doing anything. Um, but just those hands-on things like that are really important. And I think it doesn't feel like work to them. It feels like they get to play because always at the end or at the beginning, I let them just play so that it, when it's time to do, do the work, they're way more engaged. You know, I, I'm just thinking about the Play-Doh, you know, and just the, the effort it takes in the, with your muscles and your hands to, to move Play-Doh and to be purposeful and creating something with it. And, you know, I've had students in the middle school level who still struggle with holding a pencil because they're missing some of those motor skills, those fine motor skills. And I just imagine how much like the, even the Play-Doh activities would help and support them in developing those muscles and grips in their hands. Absolutely. Because if you remember back years ago, those things were always part of our curriculum. Learning to use a glue bottle, how to squeeze it properly, learning to hold a pencil. All of those things were part of kindergarten and they've gone by the wayside now. And our students who don't get the opportunity to go to preschool, they're missing out on all of that. So to find ways like Play-Doh or, you know, we, we, put, we play little games even with our glue bottles where we dot things and we try to make secret messages for kids on their papers. And, you know, <laughs> the kids then can figure out what the message is when they, either when it dries and they see the dots or sometimes we pour glitter on it so they can see it right away. And, you know, they just, it's, those are things that are fun, but it also is teaching them all of those skills that basically have been wiped out of our curriculum anyway. You know, I find that sometimes by the time we, my students would get to middle school, some of them would, you know, have such a hatred of the school environment and they wouldn't, would be really demotivated to just even be present and come to school. Um, and I think part of that is because like, as students get older, we move away from some of those fun, engaging play-based activities. And, you know, honestly, as an educator, my favorite days were those play-based educator, like play-based lessons, because not only is it fun for the kids, but it's also fun for me as the educator. And I think one of the things that I, you know, struggle to figure out how to 
um, help other educators understand is that it's not separate from rigor and content, that they can be like married together in a really beautiful way. Um, And in fact, when you are not giving students information, but forcing them to find the answer, like you mentioned earlier, it's in fact a much higher cognitive demand um, and therefore more likely to stick and stay. Um, And so I think about um, when we would do grammar sentences, my kids oftentimes would just be so over grammar. They didn't want to talk about commas and periods. And so we would dance out our grammar sentences. So every punctuation mark, every capital letter, it had a specific dance move that the kids would create. And so we would read a grammatically correct sentence and it would just help them to identify those punctuation marks. And if we were correcting sentences, then they would dance out the correct way that the sentence should be punctuated. And it was something that was so silly. It took five minutes And it made students feel um, a little bit of joy at the beginning of class before we even got into the rest of our content. It was actually so funny because several times um, at parent-teacher conferences, I'd have students who would force their parents to do the dance (laughs) for sentences. They'd be like, Miss Wolf, can you pull up like the sentence? I'm going to have my mom dance this out. And um, you know, they became really invested or we would do mock trials when we were learning about argument and the kids had to pretend to be the lawyer and the jury and kind of analyzing arguments and that it contextualized their learning for them. It gave it purpose. It wasn't just we're learning about arguments to learn about arguments because it's in our standards, but we're learning about this because this is a skill that can be helpful, right? And so I feel like there are so many resources out there like that um, that we can tap into for every grade and every um, content area, but sometimes we don't necessarily have the freedom to do so, especially if you're working at a school that's been labeled title one. And sometimes I think we, um, take that to mean as, um, educators that we have, that we are taking on all this prescriptive learning, right? We tend to have less freedom and less autonomy in those spaces. But I think, you know, to your point earlier, you have students who were learning how to calculate tickets and do take on real world jobs like waiter and wait, waitress at kindergarten level. Imagine what those same students are able to do when they get to high school if they have that experience throughout and their teachers have the autonomy to create those resources for their kiddos. Absolutely. And I really truly feel like, you know, you were just talking about dancing out the sentences. What are those kids years from now going to remember? Are they going to remember a worksheet you put in front of them? (laughs) Or are they going to remember dancing out their sentences? And I always tell everyone that because people will come to me and say, oh, you do too many fun things. You do too many crafts. You just have too much fun in your room. And I always say, isn't that what school is supposed to be about? It's having fun and making learning fun for these kids. And I always tell people, you know, uh, it's coming up on President's Day, and we always make a big George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, and I, I hang them up on the board, and so all the people can walk by our classroom and see, and people will say, oh, I just did a little workbook with them. Well, what are they going to remember? The George Washington that they got to curl his hair around the end of a pencil, <laughs> you know, and cut out the three-corner hat, or are they going to remember a workbook that you gave them? I just substituted in a class the other day and the kids are in first grade and I asked them, it's social studies time and the the teacher had left suddenly, she was sick and she just wrote a little note, social studies. And I asked the kids, what are you learning? And they pulled out the workbook and that's, that was their learning. They had no idea what they were learning or why they just had this workbook. And I thought, that is really a sad state of affairs. So I quick, they took them off to PE and I went and copied a fun 
um, interactive activity where we compared polar bears and penguins and we watched a National Geographic's video about it quickly first. And then the kids got to pretend they were polar bears jumping from iceberg to iceberg. I just laid out paper, just went and got some big white construction paper pieces and put them around the room and the kids got to jump around them. And, you know, and then we pretended to walk like a penguin and it was fun. They had so much more fun and they were so much more engaged. And when I told people I was going to sub in that class, they were like, oh, that's a tough class. I didn't have one issue. And it's because they weren't sitting there doing a workbook about a subject they had no idea what they were supposed to be learning. And instead they were engaged. And at the end, I subbed for two days. And at the end of the day, on Thursday of last week, they said, these were the best two days of first grade ever. Aww. And I thought, you know, it should that shouldn't be the case. They should be excited for their teacher to come back. And granted, she's a long-term sub, so she doesn't have all the tools in her toolbox. But it's sad that, you know, me doing something as simple as walking like a penguin and jumping on icebergs like a polar bear is the best two days they've had of the whole school year so far. Well, and those practices are are based in educational research too, because they say that one of the biggest predictors of reading success is having experience with the topic outside of just what you're reading. Right. And so when you have the context of like pretending to be a penguin, when you have the context of talking about icebergs and seeing pictures and watching videos about it, it helps you to better process what you're reading and understand it and leads to better comprehension. Yes, absolutely. And I truly believe that you know, when I make a big deal about a story that we're reading and I say, oh, I love this author. I just love Jan Brad, or I just love Tommy DePaula or I love Barbara Park and Junie B. Jones is my favorite. The kids are automatically more bought into whatever I'm going to read to them. And I have found that the, immediately the next time we go to the library, that's the books they're asking for. Where are the Jan Brett books? Where are the Junie B. Jones books? And they, those are the books they want to read because I have opened up a whole nother piece of literature to them, aside from the story that their teacher reads to them three or four times during the week that they have to read. Right. You know, there's so much here with play-based learning. Um, what advice would you give to educators who want to try play-based learning for the very first time, and maybe they're worried about, you know, how to incorporate the standards, or maybe they're worried about how classroom discipline and classroom management will happen. What are some tips and tricks that you have for implementing play-based learning and overcoming some of those very real concerns? Well, one of the things that I do um, is... I always tell the kids from, from the get-go, as soon as we start incorporating centers and play into our day, I tell the kids, you know, it would be very simple for me to just copy a bunch of worksheets and have you do a worksheet at your level instead of getting to play these games. So you, I'm going to respect you enough to give you this freedom to play these games, but I need you to respect our classroom expectations. And if they don't, then we stop and we reset. I never take it away because I don't want them to, to ever feel like they've done something so horrible that they don't get to play the game or that they've lost it for the class. And that just becomes a whole nother issue. But I, I do, I'll stop and reset and do a lot of reminders. And maybe the first few weeks that we're doing it, we get through one, they each get to play one game in the time allotted for centers. But I think that that's one of the biggest tips is take your time and don't try to throw it all in at once. 
do do it slowly. Pick, you know, um, five games and make it five different centers. And by the end of the week, hopefully they've played all of them. And if not, carry it over to the next week. And the other thing I would say is make it simple. Do not put in so many pieces and so much instruction that you don't get to actually enjoy watching the kids do this or pull your small groups or whatever it is that you have planned for yourself at that time. And don't make it so stressful on the kids that pretty soon something that should be fun is has become an argument because each person has a different interpretation of the rules. Make it simple, make it flexible, do something like the Play-Doh or, you know, even if you don't have a kitchen or a, or a play center in your room, get a couple of aprons and put out some laminated paper and make it a little restaurant of your own. Let the kids make the food for it. Let them draw it on construction paper, whatever it is, and set up a little restaurant or set up some other fun little center like that. Set up a beauty shop where the kids can pretend to do each other's hair and then they have to fill out the bill for how much it costs and figure all of it out. It's, it's not, it doesn't cost a lot of money and it's very quick and simple. But one book that I have used in the past is called um, Playing to Learn, Learning to Play. And it really helped me realize, even if I don't use all the specifics out of it, it helped me um, incorporate things to help the kids learn to get along and learn to solve their problems without fighting and learn to just accept the game as it was instead of being rigid about rules. So um, I would I would recommend that book to people. And, and actually, the authors are here from here in Arizona. So it's very cool. <laughs> you know, it makes a lot of sense that the um, title would be, you know, playing to learn, learning to play, just because, you know, I think sometimes there's this misconception that we're playing just to play. Right. Um, and really wonderful um, masters of their craft educators can create opportunities for authentic play with real subject matter rather than it's not busy work, right? Like just giving someone a coloring worksheet because you want them to be quiet is not the same thing as what we're talking about, which is play-based learning. And it's exactly. really centering new skills and new activities and it's very intentionally crafted in order to do that exactly um, and, you know post-covid there's a, a lot of experiments happening in education right where we're changing up the what we've done for hundreds of years in education to try to find better ways to engage with students and i was talking to a colleague in south dakota um, who is funding a grant opportunity for educators to purchase board games and those types of um, like card games so that they can have those for like when we have to have indoor recess and when we have um, you know clubs or whatever but giving students opportunities to play with like um, you know monopoly play monopoly or uno or whatever and learn how to read the instructions right how to follow instructions how to collaborate how to get along with other individuals and sometimes when we are only allowing play in digital environments we're not creating enough opportunities for students to to have failure right and to experience productive struggle and all of those pieces and so I just find that fascinating that even the way that we're spending our time you know, on campus, maybe not in a classroom can be an opportunity for skill development. Absolutely. And, you know, you were talking about the board games. I had a principal who really felt deeply that this was important to have kids because they were so invested in their video games and their, you know, if they were bored, their parents hand them their phone or whatever it is. We would spend one day a month, the entire afternoon was board games. 
And it built such a huge community in our classrooms because the kids would have contests. And of course, in kindergarten, you're giving them games where they have the instructions, but they might be pictures, you know, like Candyland and things like that, that they can learn to play on their own. But they are looking forward to who they're going to play with or last week, so-and-so beat them at don't break the ice and this week they're going (laughs) to win, you know? And so it was just a lot of fun for the kids. But it goes back to what you were saying about trying to change up the way we teach and the way we learn. And, you know, when I, after COVID, it was really hard at first when we came back into the classroom because you couldn't do some of those activities. Right. But you can, you can still adjust those. You can still say, this is your can of Play-Doh. No one else is going to touch it now. It's yours mm-hmm. for the rest of the school year. And we're going to play a game with it right now. We're all going to do it together. And maybe you're not putting them into small groups to play, but maybe you're still doing it as a class. And maybe that's, that's a way for people to incorporate it. Maybe they try one thing with the whole class. And if it's successful, try two things the next week. And, you know, maybe pick two subjects that you're going to do this in. And maybe you start with social studies and science because people feel so much pressure for reading and math scores. So maybe you start in a subject that is always generally looked upon as more fun anyway, and you incorporate it that way. But I just feel like going back to what I learned 24 years ago is really the way to bring our test scores up. And and it's really important for teachers to understand that it doesn't have to be following every single PowerPoint that the district reading specialist and math specialist have created for you. And it doesn't have to be, um, you know, handing out every worksheet that the reading series uh, printed for you or doing every page in the workbook. It can be a mixture of both and it can be fun for the kids. And moving forward, I, I really look forward to getting back into the classroom full time because I miss those opportunities. I don't miss the copying. I don't miss the tests. I miss the play and interacting with the kids that way because truly that's not only how they build their relationships with each other, but that's how I built relationships with them too because I was not afraid to get down and play with them. If it was beauty shop day, do my hair. I don't care how many clippies you've got here or whatever it is. And I'll walk you to lunch that way. You know, I don't care. So it's just, I really believe that those opportunities are how we move forward and how we get back to um, really engaging our kids because it's not giving them a Chromebook and uh, a bunch of online assignments. Well, this has been such a um, wonderful podcast episode, and it's um, I, I feel like I've already got some new ideas for ways that I can incorporate play and some of our adult learning that we're doing um, through AEA. So I'm really excited to um, explore that resource that you shared, the book that you shared. Um, and I would also recommend, you know, other educators, if you're looking at play-based learning, reach out to your kindergarten teachers, your first grade teachers who are already masters at this, um, for tips and support, and also reach out to your art teachers and your physical ed teachers who play sports and who, um, conduct activities that might seem a little chaotic from the outside and see how they manage those environments as resources, um, for how we can all improve our instruction. Thank you so much again kelly for coming on the show uh, we really appreciate you and we can't wait to see what you're gonna do next thank you for having me and thanks for letting me brag about what i love the most <laughs> our pleasure
we want to give a special shout out to Josh Adkins from Paradise Valley Education Association for composing our theme song and another shout out to Carrie Wolf for producing each episode. If you want more information on other Learn and Lead opportunities and professional development made for educators and by educators, check out ArizonaEA.org slash professional dash excellence or reach out to your local president. If you're not currently a member and want to be part of creating opportunity for all students through the power of public education, you can join the Arizona Education Association by going to ArizonaEA.org backslash join. And that's the bell.